Hi, this is Ethan Song, Duke Plastic Surgery Resident with the Resident Review of Plastic Surgery Podcast. Today, we are joined with Dr. Robert Murphy Jr. as part of our leadership series. Dr. Robert Murphy Jr. is a board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon with added qualification in surgery of the hand, who currently serves as the Executive Vice President and Chief Physician Executive of the Lehigh Valley Health Network, or LVHN, in Pennsylvania. In addition, he serves as the President and Board Chair of LVHN's Accountable Care Organization and CMO of Populytics, a population health management organization. He serves as the current program director of the Integrated Plastic Surgery Residency at Lehigh Valley and is a professor of surgery at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. Within the realm of plastic surgery, Dr. Murphy has held many leadership roles, most notably as the past president of the Robert H. Ivey Society of Plastic Surgeons, the Northeastern Society of Plastic Surgeons, and American Society of Plastic Surgeons, ASPS. He is a current trustee of ASPS, and president of the International Confederation of Plastic Surgery Societies, or ICOPLAST, and senior examiner for the American Board of Plastic Surgery. He received his undergraduate degree from Williams College in biology and psychology, his medical degree from NYU, and completed his residency at Beth Israel Deaconess and Morristown Memorial Hospital and a plastic surgery fellowship at Montefiore Medical Center with a hand surgery fellowship subsequently at NYU. He further completed a master's degree in health evaluation sciences from Penn State University. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Murphy. Good to be with you again, Ethan. Yes, yes. As uh, the audience is just getting to uh, get acquainted with us, um, Dr. Murphy actually happened to be the program director at where I did my clinical rotations in medical school. So we do have a long history and we're very happy to have him here. Um, So just to get started, Dr. Murphy, um, as Uh, As someone who has a very, very unique role within um, the healthcare system in administration, but also coming from the background of plastic surgery, how and when did you get started with all these leadership roles? Was this something you had always gravitated towards or was it more of like a natural progression? I'd say it was kind of an unnatural progression there, Ethan, at the very beginning, because, you know, having having trained, having gone to NYU for med school and trained in Boston and done a you know, high pressure fellowship at NYU. My vision for myself was being a uh, a very highly focused academic plastic surgeon um, coming right out of training. But circumstances kind of got me distracted a little bit. So when I was recruited here to LVHN in Pennsylvania, um, there were certain things going on in Pennsylvania that I just didn't understand or accept. And one of those was there was a very vigorous um, malpractice environment, anti-doctor malpractice environment in the state. And certainly as I got here and started to understand that, I couldn't understand why doctors were being vilified. Um, and that didn't sit well with me because I've spent my whole last eight years, you know, living in hospitals, giving up a lot of personal freedom and, and the like in order to make sure that I was the best person I could be to take care of the patients who needed me. So in my mind, our specialty and our, our profession was there not to um, do anything but take care of the folks who need us, you know, at a time when they were most, most vulnerable and needed folks to, to oversee their care and to be portrayed in 
you know, purely economic terms as, as something less than that was something I wasn't able to, um, to stomach. Uh, and so with that, I started becoming very involved locally in, in physician advocacy, um, first in my community on the medical staff, then in my county and the county medical society. And then I started to deal with politicians in that way. And then for my state medical society. And as, as I became more and more involved, I became more and more convinced that unless physicians participated in constructing the system, we were going to be victims of the system. And so within a, a year or two of my actually landing and starting to develop my, my private practice, I took on, you know, this, this side role. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> gotcha. And it sounds like this had gradually accumulated these experiences that accumulated over time. And that had led to a more natural progression of you taking on larger roles within your community and also within like the hospital healthcare system. Absolutely. So yeah, once I went down that path, it was one of those that, that my appetite for, for contributing in a number of different ways. When I, when I talk to the residents that, that we train, you know, I say my life is built on three systems. My life is built on patient care where I take care of one person at a time uh, as being a, a program director and teacher, where in some way I impact every patient you will touch <clears throat> in your careers. But then finally, as a, as a professional and community leader, where um, by taking on these roles, I have the, impact, the ability to impact a different population, a different set of folks. Um, and I think that's, that's been very satisfying and, and very fulfilling for me over the course of my career. Yeah, absolutely. And I had always admired you for, for that sort of um, attribute and that position, because for me, I think my own, um, my own goals too have been, you know, to be a good physician, but also hopefully impact patients that I might never even get the chance to meet. And it sounds like you've been able to do that, which is incredible. Um, and, you know, being able to help shape some of that healthcare landscape in that community is is definitely a, a very fascinating position to be in. Um, so you had mentioned that there needed to be some sort of physician involvement in the management um, of a hospital or of a healthcare system. Um, so can you tell us more about your thoughts on physicians being in this executive leadership position in the hospital and what type of role they play? Because it seems like there's more and more physicians becoming more visible in the leadership role um, in, across the country. I think I think that's well put, Ethan. I think there's there's two roles for physicians to fill in in leadership in their hospital systems. One is one that's traditional, um, the traditional departmentally based structure, where where certainly a number of our colleagues who have enormous talent uh, and an appetite to to also do things outside of uh, the operating room are able to lead the division of plastic surgery in some institutions as a department of plastic surgery. And there are even some of our colleagues who, uh, who have gone over and above that and led entire departments of surgery. So, so making huge contributions, um, you know, with regard to, to um, the traditional within a hospital structure um, type of thing. Um, what makes my life a little different is that I look at um, other aspects during my professional development. One I became very early interested in, in quality and patient safety. Mm -hmm. So when the reports came out about, you know, all the, the damage caused by hospitals and doctors, at first I was, uh, again, just like with the malpractice thing, no, this can't be true. 
Um, but then when I looked into it, it turned out that we had lots of opportunities for us to do better. And with that became, started to focus on, on patient safety, quality improvement and the like. And what that did actually is it led me down a different course and a different path as, as I had successes in there. In those realms, uh, as my career evolved, those higher up in the, in the network, the CEOs and like took, took a line of sight that someone like myself seemed to, to be um, engaged and involved. And, uh, you know, just like you and I are having a nice conversation now, I, I wasn't afraid to have conversations with people and, and, and try to talk to them and get them to see, to see that there may be another, another way of looking at things. And with that, that took me um, down the path of the CEO finally asked me if I wanted to do some of my, my work in quality and patient safety, but potentially to evolve into the business side of the hospital, mm-hmm. which is the reason that led to my, my master's pursuit of the master's, after which time I was taken out of the, the medical leadership roles and put into roles like running, uh, being CMO of one of the hospitals, um, running the... Uh, uh, running the arm of the uh, of the enterprise that had the physician input to the uh, insurance contracts, and then ultimately my current role, which is basically anything clinical in our four billion dollar organization, reports to me. So that means that means the employed physician groups, the work with the independent physician groups, the uh, uh, government affairs, um, population health management, community health. Um, and things of that nature. So it, it gives me a, 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 nice, uh, pa- a nice palette upon which to, to kind of to draw upon and, and uh, impact a lot of diff- the institution and, and the community in a lot of different ways. Yeah, definitely. You are a man of many talents and also wearing many hats, it sounds like. What, um, you know, I find this journey to be very interesting too as a, as a plastic surgeon because in the places that I've seen where there's physician executives, they often come from like internal medicine or pediatrics or um, a non-surgical field. So do you feel like the your role as a plastic surgeon has offered like a new perspective on how um, a hospital should be run or anything you feel like the plastic surgery role or background has, has helped shape your path too? Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm a man of Tremendous respect for the pediatricians and the internists and the like who've risen to hospital leadership, but that's usually in the traditional CMO role, mm-hmm. right? So I think where plastic surgeons have a different skill set is two twofold. One is one is we're surgeons, and we as surgeons have a yearning, I think, and particularly plastic surgeons to be able to measure and see our outcome mm-hmm. very, in a very objectified way. And I think that contributes a lot to it. The other thing is plastic surgeons that I don't think can be minimized is the fact that ours is a creative specialty. So the people drawn to plastic surgeons by and large have to be very nimble intellectually and considerate of of multiple, multiple data inputs with regard to a problem and multiple outputs with regard to our approaching that certain problem. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I think there's, there's the ability to in corporate America to be able to bring a, a, a high degree of medical expertise to a boardroom 
but be able to look at things creatively and, and in a non-traditional fashion, which brings to the boardroom medical input, which may be a little more cre- a little more creative, but I think that sort of different viewpoint and or creativity is really important in corporate healthcare and the boardrooms because we're just facing extraordinarily challenging times. And for us to be able to do the things we want to do for our patients and our community, you know, to quote Einstein, to do the same thing that you've done over and over and expect a different result is insanity. And I, I think that without that creativity, we're going to be very challenged. So I'm, I'm very happy to be in the position I am today and, and, and very encouraging of, uh, of our younger brethren in, in our field, plastic surgery, um, if there is an appetite for that to, to become involved, because again, I think we, we are a, a nimble profession and uh, can bring a different vantage point. Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Marcus, uh, in a recent conversation I had with him, he said that it's very similar to what you had mentioned, you know, plastic surgeons are creative problem solvers. And that ability to think outside the box is definitely a skill set that only comes with experience, that comes um, also from just being able to see things from different perspectives. And I think that's a very unique skill to have, especially when you bring it to the corporate side of healthcare, you know, trying to be able to, you know, fit things in different shapes and sizes and making things work. So you had spent a lot of time within the healthcare administration side and had also pursued additional education um, on the way. You know, I definitely want to talk about, you know, the additional education part, because it seems like people are getting degrees and health administration, there's all these different branches that one could go into, but within your own experience, um, how has this per- changed your perception of the practice of medicine on the more management side compared to when you first started your practice as a physician or your original thoughts of being a physician? I think as a uh, private practitioner, you, you develop a certain skill set around business on a small scale. If the thought is to uh, become involved in medical leadership in any way, CMO, department chair, whatever, you have to at least be conversant in concepts that corporate Americans would use in finance terms and the like like that, and at a very high level, at least be able to understand. And for that, you don't necessarily need a second degree. It may be helpful within the chain of command in your particular institution or a large academic center that they would would look to that as being a, a potential requirement. But by and large across the country is not at this point um, necessarily required to have a, a higher level position. But once you go beyond that, where you have to have a be conversant, um, if you if you go down kind of the track that I do, where you need to to be more influential within the C-suite or, mm-hmm. or the corporate side of, uh, of your network with the board, uh, that requires additional skill sets and, uh, and training. And for that, that's where you start to get into, into the advanced degrees with the masters. I always thought our profession is a little weird because for those of us who are going into that, we get our masters after our doctorate where every other place it's a, it's a linear progression. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, and, and, you know, it's, it depends on the particular opportunity you're facing. So, you know, MBAs is a standard, MHA is another, mm-hmm. the health evaluation because of the particular need to, the particular course mine went down. But, um, but 
in that regard, a lot of the master's levels degrees are seen as being a, a, a ticket to ride the train in that you've proven your dedication um, and, your, and your willingness to get the extra training. So that's a, a ticket you've stamped. And then the exact nature of the degree, degree you can focus on, you know, what the, uh, the potential line or opportunity you have to, to select that appropriately. Gotcha. So, for example, somebody who is going to be a director of population health services may get a, a master's of, you know, health administration. Somebody who's who's going to be running or president of a multi-specialty group may get an MBA. Somebody who's going to be involved in in either the running a specialty group or insurance arms or the like may get a health evaluation mm-hmm. where you have to match, you know, wellness with with finance and numbers. So. So, you know, there's, there's uh, potentially a strategy to, to pursue um, once you decide to go down that level. Gotcha. Yeah. A, and it seems like the timing, too, is also varying. Sometimes I've seen physicians get an MBA even as part of their MD degree, like an MD, MBA, or at least practice for a couple of years and then get an MBA or even further down, get like an executive MBA. Is there a right answer for this? Is there like a good time or best time to pursue an additional degree like that? Well, the only the only good time is if you've really committed your life to doing that, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I would I would suggest that life is complicated enough as it is. And that if if you have a passing interest or want to rise to be a division chief, a second degree isn't necessarily what you want to do. Time may be better spent doing research, producing papers, um, advancing in the, uh, you know, the track along your, your professorships, things like that. Um, because ultimately you still want to have a little bit of a life and the like, right. And the right time to do that is when you've committed. So for example, my, I guess I'm, I'm the number two guy in our organization as the chief physical executive. The number one guy is also a doctor, the CEO. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when the leadership positions were coming up, he took me out to uh, he's a good friend of mine took me out and he said asked about whether I was interested in pursuing the CEO job because he wanted to and he wanted to make sure whether we we're going to be competing mm-hmm. and I said I do not want to be the CEO because I will never leave the doctor side behind mm-hmm. so uh, as you know even though I'm up in this up in this degree and they want they've wanted me to leave a practice behind. I still do practice. I'm still program director because that's the core of my being. And that's part of what generates my ethic and my wanting to do these other things for the community. And it also, I think, gives me a persona of being still in the trenches mm-hmm. and leading, leading by being a member of the physician community. Whereas I've seen multiple examples of physicians who've left that behind to to only stay within the office and the relevance factor seems to seems to go away you're not one of us anymore you're one of them so with that I I you know on that day I happily swore that you know that he could be my boss and I would be the wingman but uh but um I wasn't going to leave behind you know the the practice of medicine for for this other track I hear you yeah so it sounds like you know, stay, still staying involved in the residency, at least keeps you grounded and 
really close to the practice. And I know you've been also doing cases uh, as, as well. Um, at least when I was uh, in medical school, you were you were still operating. Yep, oh, that's that's I'd love to hear that. Yeah, yep. to hear that. And it sounds like there's a lot of balancing, you know, responsibilities and it, with the overwhelm. I mean, just considering all the different roles that you play, I can imagine things. There's so many things to do all the time. How do you manage your priorities? How do you manage your time with every, you know, these are very high stakes situations that you could be involved in. And I, I can imagine that there are so many things to consider, all these different things to connect and people to talk to, leading teams. Um, can you walk me through like how you're able to get all of that done? I think what it takes, Ethan, is a very purposeful approach to your development in the corporate side. And But what I mean by that is you have to develop a management and leadership style because on the corporate, on the, on the medical side of the house, it's more leadership. Mm-hmm. On the corporate side, you're running a company. So we as, we as surgeons tend to be micromanagers, right? Because we're in an OR, everything has to be right for the OR. We have to see everything right for the patient. But you have to, you have to, in a corporate world, if you micromanage, you never get beyond being able to do one task at a time to your other point. Mm-hmm. You're never able to develop the, the horizontal relationships with other leaderships, with other leaders in positions. Um, and you can't have an expanding universe. So with that, it's developing a leadership style. And then as you go along, developing the leaders behind you, mm-hmm. which is, can't be minimized. A good leader has two. A good leader has two jobs, in my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. One is to deliver the product that he is put in the position to deliver, but the second thing is to develop leaders behind him, both for succession and the ability to perform functions that give additional oversight when that leader can't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if that's a conscious part of your corporate development, I think it makes it easier because then you can manage, you can manage in such a way that you have a, a dependable group of folks that are around you that you know will deliver, and then you can delegate as much as micromanage. And that allows you to have a bigger, a bigger empire, uh, if you will, um, to be able to oversee. I see. Gotcha. And I think you have brought up a very interesting term of horizontal management or horizontal relationships. Can you tell me more about what that means and how that applies to your leadership style? Well, if you think about leadership, leadership is, can occur in two dimensions, vertical and horizontal. Mm-hmm. So the, the easy one in many ways is the vertical. The things that report to you are directly, directly responsible for, um, that's the traditional way of looking at things. The horizontal is much more complicated. So people will talk of, of corporations as being matrixed organizations mm-hmm. because there are many verticals, a CFO, a COO, a CMO, a CPE, um, a chief nursing officer, a chief insurance officer, a chief legal officer. So there's many verticals, but many times a lot of the work actually requires crossing of those lines, actually requires you know, mutual teams to be to be codified and, and, and operationalized. 
And if you don't have the skills to, to one, lead in a way that's not micromanaging, but involves other folks, and two, to be knowledgeable a little bit, at least in the other domains, you're not going to be able to come together across at the higher levels of management um, in a way that other people in other lines have faith in your ability to, to understand their problems and deliver. So part of that is education and part of that is job training. Um, but part of it is, um, is keeping an open mind and being able to understand where your skill set is, um, understand where maybe you're not seeing things to the degree that makes you comfortable. And if that's, that's something that you need to develop to, to go on and do, do more work in that regard. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So it sounds like developing relationships and realizing one that you couldn't do everything by yourself, that you need other people around you who have different skill sets, but also, you know, within teams working within that to be able to achieve something larger and greater than yourself. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, so I wanted to take this time to sort of transition into some of the more interesting stuff that you've been doing um, at LVHN. Uh, I've been following it since medical school, and I know there's a lot of really interesting developments uh, recently. So you, one of your focuses has been leading LVHN's movement towards a fee-for-value and value-based reimbursement, um, shifting away from the uh, fee-for-service, but rather fee-for-value. And this is something that has been talked about for over the past decades or so. Um, can you describe this current trend and movement away from this fee-for-service model, and how has this affected the way care is uh, delivered on a large scale, both positively and negatively? Well, it's been an interesting journey. It's one that that started around the turn of the century when companies like Aetna and U.S. Healthcare came out saying that they were going to be capitating healthcare for their subscribers and that everything had to be pre-authorized and and things like that. Never really took off to the degree that that they had hoped. But what it was doing was recognizing the fact that the United States has the highest percent of, uh, of its GDP spent on defense and on healthcare. And yet when folks looked at the return on the healthcare investment, I'm sure all, everyone's seen where we fall in the middle of the pack as far as what we deliver for what we invest. Mm-hmm. And to me, that says two things. It says one, as a doctor, I know it's not because we don't take good care of our patients. But if it's not that, it's got to be that there's a lot of waste in the system. Mm -hmm. So in order for us to be able to maintain any semblance of control of our profession and our ability to enjoy, you know, uh, better reimbursement um, or continued reimbursement for what we do, we have to be able to continue to drive that good care that we think we do continually improve it while eliminating cost mm-hmm. and waste. So very simply put for, for all of the folks that are listening here, you know, we're, we have a little bit of uh, ability to think in mathematical terms. So in the most simplified terms, value in the world of, of consumerism is a function of um, quality over cost. Mm-hmm. Simple, simple arithmetic term. So the fact that the, our GDP spend is over 18% and the fact that our population has tripled since World War II 
and the fact that more than half of the population is over 50 and approaching Medicare, where they come on the roles of government pay, and the fact that we've been hearing forever that Social Security and Medicare are going to go belly up, there's an urgency of, of seeing how we can meet the care demands and the costs expectations. So what fee-for-service basically is, it says that you go in and for every time you see a patient, you get a widget, mm-hmm. a value equivalent, or every procedure you do, you get a widget or a value equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great, but it's unsustainable because the population's going up, the money's not going up, and in fact, the money's going down. The only way for us to be able to do that is, is to look for promoting better health care. So, for example, I'm a, I'm a fairly tried and true plastic surgeon. The purse and I make X number of dollars. Mm-hmm. There, are, there is a way for a, pers- a person who makes X plus Y dollars can be doing more procedures. Mm-hmm. But how many of those procedures may be due to complications because the X procedure wasn't done right? And yet the person's being rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. Very bad, but very, but I hope illustrative. Um, that's where quality is suffering at the expense of productivity. Mm-hmm. Is the reason to take that example. So, so what value does is it values higher the X procedure because you put more time, more thought, and there's some things that happen. I mean, that happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to factor in a little bit of that. Well, a recognized complication rate is whatever, but it reward you more for giving the right time and the right resource and the right focus on having a good outcome and even picking the right patient as opposed to just the total number of stuff you do. And that goes in everything. So for, you know, an internist, it's to make sure that the patient's getting their, their beta blockers, if they've had heart attacks and things like that, mm-hmm. because if they don't, that person's going to have another heart attack and then be more cost to the system. Mm-hmm. For us, it's making sure we do the right operation on the right person at the right time in the right place and have the right outcome. Murphy's five rights. Five rights. Um, so that's the basic idea of value is you, is you, is you, is you reward more the focus on the patient and the right choice of the right patient for the right procedure for the right outcome than rewarding churn mm-hmm. uh, in the system where you just keep going, keep going, keep going. And sometimes to the, to the, less than optimal outcome. So what I've had because I've been in the insurance side of the business and stuff like that is it's great because now we have a doctor who understands things like mm-hmm. the fact that complications happen. You know, as a matter of fact, one of my papers, one of my earlier papers, the government used to call some procedures, some not so, some conditions, never events. Mm-hmm. They actually use the term never events. It should never happen. And one of my one of my papers actually talked about taking two different populations of patients. A tummy tuck population, essentially people with a BMI of 25 or thereabouts, a population of BMIs of 25 to 35, and populations of BMIs of 35 and over. And by by following all the guidelines that the government put out there for prophylaxis, 
if your BMI was over 35, you were going to have twice as many PEs, twice as many, you know, um, wound infections, twice as many, all that stuff saying the point being is that we can be perfectly compliant with best practice, but there's intrinsic variables and patient condition and other things that mean it can't be a never event. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have to have a line of sight to understanding what the, what the right standard deviation or two standard deviations is around the bell curve and be able to communicate that effectively to the, the payers, to the, to the hospital quality overseers and the like. Uh, and I, I think, again, that's someplace where a plastic surgeon who has an interest in this has a, um, a voice that, that is uh, potentially very beneficial to, to the peers in the community. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. Thank you for you know the the whole description all of that I, I can imagine it's very complicated and really gets down into the weeds the numbers and creating models of you know probably like certain diagnoses or certain procedures let's see what are the percentage risks and all of that and then um i mean this is way over my head but what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me um do you feel that you know you're you're both on the insurance side and also on the hospital side as well do you feel like there's any conflict of interest or do you feel like that actually goes and blends well together? No, I, I don't think it's a conflict of interest because when I'm on the insurance side, I'm on the insurance side for the negotiation for the hospital. I see. Okay. So just to clarify. But mm -hmm. I think having lived in that world, it makes me a much stronger competitor to the insurer against the insurer. I don't want to say against, but it's against the insurance companies mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about contracts for um for our hospital and our and the patients in the community um and i think you know at one point we talked about it and the like and and some of the things there that were again i think a were slightly unique in the field about the ability to impact you know uh for the benefit i think of our patients yeah definitely and this really dovetails into that next question that i had where we, you had recently negotiated that large agreement with that and insurance for their patients to continue to receive care as an in-network at LVHN after there were talks about, or at least you had initially terminated that relationship. So um, being able to successfully navigate that and then agree to a large uh, negotiation there, what was that process like for you? And can you walk me through that process of navigating these sort of high stakes negotiations where a lot of patients are are counting on on this conversation and everything that's happening behind the scenes? Yeah, it was, it was a very interesting position for me to be in, um, partnered with the CFO. And that's where you go to those horizontal relationships that I talked about. So the only way this could be a battle won against a national corporation such as that is to have the horizontal relationship completely trusting of each other's um, skill set and vantage point. Mm -hmm. And what we did is, we, um, you know, the CFO had for three or four years been contesting Aetna's um, denial rates. Um, for payments and uh, inflexibility with certain things, which finally bubbled to a head. Um, and then in speaking with me, determining what the patient population that was involved, um, what types of procedures and, and conditions we were treating, what our skill set was as a provider organization and treating those skill sets. Mm -hmm. And what we came from them is, Aetna was not delivering up to its contractual obligations in our mind. 
and the outcomes and the, the outcomes that we were taking care of of the patient were beyond the metrics that were expected of us. Therefore, those two things made the two of us decide we were market essential, even though we have, as you know, a very strong competitor right across the street. Right. Having determined that we were, in our minds, market essential, we looked at the impact if, Aetna, if we did terminate the contract and that walked away and, and how many millions of dollars that would mean to us. And at the same time, what potential other insurance partnerships might mean to us that we were looking at and, and could we mitigate the damage of one with the other. Mm-hmm. And we decided two things. One, that we were market essential and potentially so market essential because we had the higher level services like the burn units and things like that, that the competitor didn't have that we'd be able to garner other business if we did walk away uh, and they chose not to meet us. Um, but again, we thought we were enough market essential. Mm-hmm. So when Aetna kind of um, decided that they were not going to meet us at our, on our grounds, um, first they said they would, they would negotiate when a judge said that they should. And then they said, well, we want to bring in another negotiating team and legal team. And the judge said, okay. And then they did it a third time. And the third time it's like another year or something later. And we said, done. So here's the other, the fun part about being a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't go to, you don't go to your community and say, we're fighting Aetna over payment, right? Mm-hmm. You put a white coat on and you go to the doc, you go to the community and say, we are fighting for the ability to take care of you and your insurance company is denying us that ability. Mm. And the first time the, it wasn't the Aetna chief, it was the the CVS Aetna headquarters. The first time they saw that and they saw it repeat, they said, get that Murphy off the air. Because when you link with your patients, and you link with them that you're their advocate and you link with them that you're their caregiver, then you're the hero. If it becomes about money, if it becomes about anything else, you're not gonna resonate and connect. And and in our hearts, right, each doctor is a patient advocate. So it's an easy message to deliver. It's an easy one, very easy one for the community to to build up on. And I think within three days, Etten had agreed to most of our terms plus the additional benefits we want in the contract. We're having a slightly similar similar uh, issue right now with another large payer for us. And uh, we're able to get their corporate leadership to come visit us in Allentown. Um, so, um, so we think we've made a good statement uh, out there and uh, we think we represent ourselves well. And we think to the very earlier point, I think that, I think that what makes this kind of unique and, and, um, why I approach it with such enthusiasm is the ability to work horizontally mm-hmm. and not take care of my patients in the OR, but now to be able to impact, you know, potential survivability um, of, of my institution is great because we're, these are bad times. They're complicated by COVID, by work shortages, by, by premium pay. Um, you know, ourselves, we're at about a, a $10 million a month over budget on premium pay for nurses, you know, and, and things like that. And that stuff that is not for profit, you can't make up. So the only way to, to mitigate that a little bit is making sure you've got contracts that reflect the type of quality and value that you deliver.
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very inspiring and congratulations. I, I feel like being also the physician, like you said, putting on that white coat and being the advocate for your patient is also a very unique perspective and position to be when you're having these types of conversations and high stakes negotiations. Now, looking back, hindsight 2020, you know, everything, it sounds like ended up the way you wanted to, but during the time that you were negotiating this, were you ever worried that this was, you know, they were not going to come back and you had just lost the larger payer? And how do you deal with that level of stress or at least coming up with maybe a backup plan? Like what, what was going on in your mind during those times? Well, I think in, in like every surgeon going to the OR, you always have a backup if you have a complication, right? And that's why I think when I when I described kind of the process, you know, was a was a contractual assessment followed by a market assessment followed by a uh, a what if scenario plan. You know, this was this was something that uh, a decision that was reached after many many weeks of uh, of of doing various modeling and looking at data and and then deciding, you know, which path to go, but you're very right. I mean, this is, this is a probability game. This isn't a, uh, this isn't a, uh, a black and white area. Um, and we were frankly going down territory that other, in ways that other healthcare systems were not. Um, so we didn't have a lot of, a lot of, uh, you yeah. know, examples out there to, to draw upon. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's one of those things that you think you can never be sure. Um, but, you know, plastic surgeons are intelligent people who are thoughtful, who look at all these options and make decisions every day based on their assessment of those relative risks and values. Um, and in that way, I, I was just able to, to compliment my CFO buddy in a way such that we had a good outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the big things you had mentioned too to help shift the the tides in this negotiation was to get another key stakeholder involved, which was the patients, and to get them aligned with what your position was. And then that way you have a bit more leverage in these conversations. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so now we had sort of talked about your conversations and work within like the insurance payer side. You've also done a lot of work with talking to government agencies. Um, you're also involved in organized plastic surgery at both the national and international level, having been the past president of ASPS. Now, how are those conversations managed with the government as opposed to like a, a, a corporation? And are there any changes? What, what type of nuances are there um, when you're advocating for your plastic surgeons? Well, I think it's the same type of philosophy, just applied on a different scale. Mm -hmm. um, the mistake that we make as plastic surgeons when we deal in government affairs is that, again, we are very intelligent folks who, who are very passionate about our patients and very passionate about our belief system. When you go into a government situation, those passions can be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. in in that government just doesn't work that way. Government is, is consensus. Government is increasingly parochialized along party lines. And, so, and we are a small specialty. So three things you have to take into the, into the government affairs arena is, one, we're a small specialty. We can't speak 
with our only our own voice and have any impact. Mm -hmm. um, two, folks sitting on the other side of the table in government often are not the politicians in the highest place, but their staff. And many times doctors feel put out by not sitting down with the people they see on TV. And then three, if you get to the people on TV, they might not know what you're talking about because they depend on the staff. So it's a different, it's a different type of paradigm. So being able to take, take your personal sense of how you would like to approach this, but recognizing that there's a different process involved in government conversations. Um, and that process means you, you have to understand the system, you have to work the system, and you have to work the system with two partners um, one is one is other other medical specialties or similarly aligned professional societies, mm -hmm. and the other is the patients. So again, if just like before, if you can put the patient at the center of any conversation, um, and you are their advocate, that gives you the white hat. And then it's just your ability within governmental con concerns to build the right allegiances to be able to have a larger voice than we can on our own. I see, I see, yeah. So a lot of it is also making sure you have the right relationships with the right people so that you can leverage your position again. And the conversation obviously is probably a little bit more different because these people that you're talking to in the government um, have also other things that they have to consider and then relay it up. and. I, I think that definitely adds a, a, another flavor to these conversations. Absolutely. But if what you just said was exactly right. It's the relationships. So that would be, you know, to reflect back to the other conversation, that would be the horizontal. Mm -hmm. So it's a simplifying leadership. The concepts are consistent no matter what domain you're working in. Mm -hmm. And coming down to principles of, of leadership. Which exactly. Is, yeah. And I, I love how our conversation is always coming back to horizontal relationships and being able to rely on other groups as well. Um, I think those are some overarching themes and I definitely great takeaways. Now, now that we've sort of covered your involvement in the healthcare, hospital, medical side, you're also involved in community activism with, with veterans, is that correct? Um, you're, uh, you have a commitment to helping wounded veterans through the comprehensive aesthetic recovery effort or care. Um, how did you get involved in that? And then what are the goals of that organization? And how do you uh, manage all of these different uh, involvements? Um, well, I think I think uh, on a more granular level is that um, is that I'm, I'm old enough to have almost been drafted in Vietnam, mm -hmm. um, which led to a, and my my father was in the service and uh, my father in law was in the service and. Uh, but you know there was the political things, times change and whatever. But but what I've I've always valued is the fact that that service means a lot to me. I think our profession is built around service. But folks who put them who put themselves in a position of their service to others is often at a cost of their own well-being is a debt that we as a society can never pay. Just like as leaders in a community, we owe service to those 
in our communities that don't have the ability to care for themselves. Mm -hmm. So in any way that, that I can help bring the strength of an organization around to recognize that and to um, support that, it's just, I think, part of the ethic of, of what we do as healthcare professionals. Um, and, you know, I think most of us would, would consider that consistent with our, our moral North Star. And we're just in this country blessed with having enough resource to be able to do the right thing with it. We just need to be able to marshal, marshal an organization around it and be able to, to operationalize the delivery of that care. I see. Wow. And uh, what type of uh, procedures are done for, for this, like within this organization, it sounds like you're helping these patients, you know, transition through, a, is it more of like a surgical side or is it comprehensive side of, of care? Yeah. So, um, so the one, the one organization you mentioned was through ASPS. The one that I'm involved locally is the Lehigh Valley Military Affairs Council. Mm -hmm. And I've never served. Um, but again, just because of my my involvement in the arena, I've been on that board for some time. And actually, you know, a lot of it is there seems there's there's two basic areas is that war has changed in time over time. Um, war has gone from a kill the most people you can um, to the type of devices that are most successful now and just in, in guerrilla warfare essentially are, you know, improvised explosive devices and the like, which are maiming and uh, traumatizing and but but also the pressures and the like are incredibly stressful and lead to a lot of PTSD. So as much as we as plastic surgeons can contribute to stump management, neuroma management, facial disfigurement and scarring, a big part of it is how you how you help the psychologically wounded return and and lead productive lives so that's that's a huge a huge part of it yeah that's truly remarkable uh, i've definitely worked with some veterans uh here at duke and you know they're very grateful for any sort of care in terms of if we're doing like tmr for for stump neuromas um or even just general reconstruction so that they can get a part of their life back um, I, I think that's truly impactful and you know, I think it's very inspiring to be able to serve those who have served us. So uh, that pretty much wraps up some of the main questions that I have. Wanted to transition into some more like more fun questions just to wrap up the interview, if that's okay with you. So if you could have a billboard, and I'm, I'm taking some of these questions from one of my other favorite podcasts, the uh, Tim Ferriss show. Um, but he, uh, he was asking if you could have a billboard with anything written on it, just post it on the side of the highway. Uh, what would it say? Plastic surgeons have one of the best jobs in the world. Just do right by your patients and your specialty. Awesome. Awesome. And um, have there been any books that have made a strong impression on you or you often will gift to others? Oh, that's tough. Well, there's different aspects of different aspects of my life. I have different. So a lot of them are are leadership based. Some of them, some of them, to tell you the truth, some of them, even at this point in my life, a lot of a lot of what I've had to do is look at my personal development and and parts of my my life that have maybe been on the personal side compromised because of all this. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so at this phase of my life, having achieved certain things, I'm doing a lot of personal introspection and, and, and personal, what I hope still personal growth at this point. So like the book I'm reading now is, is called Strength to Strength. Um, and it talks about using the strengths that you have where you've risen to the top of the pile in some ways professionally to, to one, look at using those strengths and other avenues to give you purpose outside of that and, and, to, and to recognize where your personal life maybe need to be refocused um, to make for you know, more rewards after you've gone from that point where you know, you're gaining all this professional recognition to a point where you look over your shoulder. So mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a lot, I, I think again, you know, for folks who are, the advice I give folks behind me is, you know, realizing my mistakes or choices that I've made that may have led to, to uh, issues along the line is, is always try to, to be more, more thoughtful to the thing that for every choice you make, Mm-hmm. there's a counter and don't lose, you know, as you go along certain things, just make sure you don't get the one, the one aspect too out of balance with the other. Otherwise life will be professionally rewarding and personally devastating or personally great, but you never get to where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're full of choices and we just have to be smart about how we make them. Yeah, life is life is all about choices, and um, it's it's always interesting to be able to choose. I think one of the things that I've been reading within at least Stoic philosophy is, you know, there's so many things out of your control, but then it's how you choose to react to your environment and the deliberate choices you make that really inform your future and also, I guess, your fate. Right, and, and being able to consider that. Right. And the other thing I'd recommend to, you know, to, to the younger folks, uh, in, you know, in, in development is don't be afraid to seek out a mentor mm-hmm. in, who, who has a career path or, or personal insights or whatever that's, that's similar to where you see your life going. Um, there's no sense reinventing the wheel at your own expense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To, to stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Or people who are midgets because too many people have stepped on their shoulders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bony, the bones get compressed a little bit because uh, because of all the standing. But exactly, definitely. Well, um, last question is, you know, we we talked about a lot of topics, and you know, we really appreciate your wisdom and your experience in being able to talk about all of this for the young professional, the aspiring plastic surgeon in either medical school or those who are training in residency or even those who are practicing as plastic surgeons who want to get involved in the type of stuff that you've been involved in, um, what are your recommendations? Like, how should they pursue this? What opportunities um, are out there, both uh, within like the hospital or even on a national level uh, within the organizational structure? So I'd, su- I'd suggest two basic, cr- two basic tasks and then a, a, a second level task. So for the younger folks, I'd say, if this is at all an interest to you, become involved in your hospital structure. And that is serve on surgical exec, serve on medical exec. That'll get you exposed to the type of things that doctors of all the specialties within, within the hospital are dealing with and, and what situations the hospital is facing. 
and it'll give you a taste for, and you'll see your division chiefs and your chairs there. So you'll it'll give you a taste for what leadership in that area would be. The other thing organizationally would be for, for plastic surgeons who have an interest in, in organizational involvement, not even necessarily my type, but, but organizational involvement anyways, is to become a member of the Young Plastic Surgeon Society of ASPS. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is, that is a, a, a wonderful organization that gives you resources and opportunities to understand what it takes to be in leadership. You start getting involved in different committees. So my committees were things like quality, government affairs, um, legislative advocacy, which ultimately supplemented my, my learnings and my ability to function in those domains. Um, so those are, those are two areas that, that are very um, relatively easy to get involved with early on. And then if you, get a, if you then get a taste of the type of thing, this is the type of thing you want to go down, don't jump in blindly seek out the right type of mentor, seek out a division chief, a department chair, a CMO, somebody like me who's got a different, a different type of, of job description and, and really get a sense of what it means, what the involvement, what the, the requirements would be, what the commitment would be and help you make a, a, a reasoned choice before you start committing lots of time in something that may, not, may, or may be very fulfilling, but may not be exactly what you want to do. Because as I say, some of these have extra, extra tickets to punch, like master's degrees, which come at no, no little expense of time when you're very busy already. So, very early on, you can get involved in hospital and community, the county medical society, or something like that, at a very basic side. Um, ASPS has a young, uh, a YPS committee section. Mm-hmm. Good places to start, and then, like I say, second level mentorship. Um, and secondary degrees if you decide to go down that path. Gotcha. Well, absolutely incredible interview. And thank you again so much for your time. Um, we'll, we'll put on some links below in our description just for some of those opportunities. Um, and that will be it for the interview. Thank you so much. Dr. Hey, Ethan, it was great connecting with you. Thanks for asking me to do this. And uh, hey, stay well and do great at Duke and, and come by, see us sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks.